0: This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments, and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com.
1: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls. And today, I'm here with Gilda R. Daniels, the author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America, Gilda, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Lee.
1: Could you tell my listeners a little bit about your background in voting rights and why you felt it was necessary to write this book now?
0: I've been a voting rights attorney for more than two decades. I have been able to see the landscape, essentially, of voter suppression. I have served as a deputy chief in the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division voting section, I was a staff attorney at the Lawyers Committee, and I'm now a law professor at uh, the University of Baltimore School of Law. Uh, I also currently serve as the Director of Litigation and Advancement Project, which is a national civil rights organization. Uh, So I've had a prime seat, if you will, certainly over the last few years to look across and see how uh, voter suppression has worked. Uh, One of the things that I've notice is that it actually operates in cycles and one of the things that I do in my book is I actually use my almost 100 year grandmother as a timeline of sorts um, so, to kind of look over the last 100 years to see where have we gone in regards to voting rights and we can show that they are like cycles where there are cycles of progress and then cycles of regress um, so certainly that that led me there was certainly a, a high motivation of of writing the book was history, my experience, and then also kind of surveying what the current state of voting rights
1: is in our country. And just to touch on history for a moment, you know, I, I grew up in Illinois, I went to Illinois public schools. Uh-huh. And it's really only been as an adult that I have realized how little I understood the period of reconstruction. And there was hmm. a there was a fact in your book that just struck me, and this was about how in the state of Alabama, in 1890, 140,000 black men were registered to vote. But by 1906, there were only 46 black persons who were registered to vote. So rather than what message I received as a child, and whether that was on purpose or not, which was, oh... There just wasn't much of anything until the the 1950s, 1960s civil rights era. Mm -hmm. No, people had been fighting these battles and struggling and and winning certain battles uh, when it comes to voting rights before this, and then ground was lost. Could you talk a little bit about how that happened and what signs you see today when you're worried about history repeating itself?
0: Well, one of the things that can actually go beyond or before Reconstruction to the Founding Fathers and the inclusion of the Three-Fifths Compromise. I think it was certainly the first indication that we saw that the right to vote was not for all men or all people uh, when they determined that they would only count those persons who were enslaved as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of apportionment, essentially for the purpose of determining how many representatives would come from a particular state's the compromise that was reached by our founding fathers. But we see that from the beginning, uh, certainly voter suppression was the modus operandi of the United States government. Fast forward to the Civil War, and you have the Civil War amendments where you have the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, which in the 15th amendment, which gave the right to vote to essentially black men. After the passage of the Civil War amendments, you we entered the period of Reconstruction. And in Reconstruction, We have elected officials, black elected officials on the state, local and federal levels. We had more African-American senators in the United States Senate in the late 1800s than we uh, certainly have had in recent history. We've only recently reached three uh, African-American senators in the United States Senate. And we had those we had that number in uh, the late 1890s. You So the length of time that it's taken us to actually reach those heights. And then that was the first glimpse that we had of what a democratic system could look like. You know, i recognized that women did not have the right to vote at that period of time. But in, in, but in just the opening the system to include African-American um, men to actually participate freely in the electoral process, we could see how it literally changed the complexion of Our elected officials um, by having African Americans elected to the state offices, local offices, and certainly the federal offices. This was short lived, however. It was less than 20 years, uh, and we saw an onslaught of poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, and other disenfranchising devices. And these devices were meant uh, and certainly were passed for the sole reason of eliminating Black voters. So, your trouble, I guess, with the number of certainly the fast decline of African-Americans voting in Alabama was on purpose. Uh, In the South, they held a number of uh, constitutional conventions to ensure that Black men could no longer certainly exercise the right to vote. And so they eliminated the right to vote for Black men during that period. And so they only, we only saw a glimpse of what democracy could look like for a very short period of time, which is certainly less than 20 years.
1: And yeah, as I said, I I felt as a reader, I was more familiar with the Jim Crow era tactics to suppress voters and that I had skipped or not understood quite (laughs) the amount of progress that had briefly been made and then taken back. So one of the things, so one that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because I felt like
0: we weren't seeing the full picture, Uh, and that we needed to we needed to make these connections. I guess as a, as a child, I used to like the you probably know what I'm talking about. As a, as a child, I I loved to play these connect the dots, and at the end, you'd have a picture. Mm-hmm. But, so that's what I hope to do with this book. It's like let's connect that this happened historically, right? You had this large-scale disenfranchisement in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And you had an almost 100-year period from the passage of the Civil War Amendment to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Right? And in, but in between that period, you had terrorism, you know, violence, massacres, right? all in an effort to prohibit African Americans from voting. And we see today, so from 1965 certainly to today, we don't see the uh, barking dogs or the or the water hoses uh, on children. But although the names have changed, we still see the same effect. We still see the same impact where it may be more than 46 people of color voting in uh, Alabama today. There's certainly disenfranchising devices that lead to the diminution of those uh, numbers and it's, and it's, and it's by design.
1: One of the things I really appreciated about your book was that by tying it in this really interesting and real way to the life of your grandmother, it allowed me as a reader kind of a a more humanizing portrait. And it made me think about, you know, my grandmother, when my grandmother was born, no women were allowed to vote Uh, by the time she was you know, eighteen, twenty-one, whatever the voting age was then, she was allowed to vote as a white woman. But mm-hmm. uh, an- another woman born the same year as her, who was a black woman, would not have been allowed. Or there would have been barriers put in her in her path. So that to me was, was very affecting. And there's a passage in your book that I was hoping you would Read and it's also about your family and, and about the feelings that kind of drove you to, to write this book. Would you mind reading that for our audience? Sure. Sleeping at a
0: dangerous time, Reverend Flooney Jackson, who was my grandfather, of course. Growing up in rural Louisiana, my grandparents were a treasure trove of advice and sound wisdom that far outpaced their formal education. My grandfather. A sharecropper with a fifth grade education taught himself to read. My grandmother worked as a domestic well into her 80s. They raised my mother and aunt, provided a loving family environment for many non biological children in the community, and hosted me and my siblings for occasional sleepovers. On those crisp Saturday mornings when the sun would peek between the cotton curtains with the small faded pattern, my grandpa would allow me to sleep a few extra minutes, but not too much. He would tiptoe into my room off the front porch and say in a stern but loving voice, sleeping at a dangerous time. As a child, I had no idea what that meant. I certainly did not sense any danger after a peaceful night of sleep. Several decades have passed since my grandfather's morning alarm, and only now can I fully understand it. After being a civil rights attorney for nearly 30 years, The full context and impact of my grandfather's admonition rings like a clarion bell. It is against the backdrop of history aided by the cogency of unobstructed vision and experience that a young woman can understand the words of a wise elder. My grandfather's warning was not about sleeping at all. It was a caution that things were happening while I slept comfortably. I was sleeping at a time when vigilance was needed. I have never forgotten his warning, and I offer it today. As a country, we have slept through the continuous assault on access to the ballot box in the name of stricter voting requirements, meritless claims of rigged elections, and baseless voter fraud proclamations. These laws, however, have created a crisis. In the past, these efforts had the primary purpose of eliminating African American voters from the voter rolls. In the new millennium, the enacted laws not only seek to abolish members of a political party, but with the same result, to eliminate voters of color. Obstructionists use race as a political proxy and substitute party for race by targeting Democratic party voters and adopting laws that seek to disenfranchise, frustrate, and eliminate minority, poor, and elderly voters. A premeditated strategy composed of laws and deceptive practices has taken root and is eroding the very basis of American democracy, the right to vote. We are, as my grandfather cautioned many years ago, sleeping at a
1: dangerous time. Well, that's very powerful. Thank you so much for reading it. And, Gilda, the reasoning behind using your grandmother as this sort of living benchmark, could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Well, in my research, I kind of saw that there these cycles last about 100 years. For example, it was approximately 100 years from the Three Fifths Compromise to the passage and ratification of the Civil War Amendments, and then another 100 years from the Civil War Amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So we're now right in the middle. From it's It's been 50, 55 years since the Voting Rights Act, and we're seeing these cycles, right? So after Reconstruction, we saw progress, and then short-lived, we saw regress, and almost, you know, 60 to 60 to 80 years of regress, right, where these devices were being used to dismantle, you know, emancipation and enfranchisement. And now we've seen these, you know, ebbs and flows, right, where after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, we were, you know, able to remove barriers. And you saw people of color being elected to positions across the country right? As well as registration rates rising. You even saw people point to the election of the first African-American president. And now you're seeing these disenfranchising devices like proof of citizenship laws, voter ID laws, these voter purges that are coming fast and furious, particularly after the Shelby County versus Holder uh, decision. My hope is that this book will help us to not have to go through another 45 years before we can get to the place where we're operating as a true
1: democracy. Today is January 29th for any of my readers who need context about that. And we are really staring down the barrel at first primary elections and then national elections at the presidential level and all the way on down. And we're kind of running out of time, it feels like, to (laughs) deal with a lot of these issues before 2020. But what as you look at the election that we're about to have, are your primary concerns when it comes to voter suppression?
0: Primary concerns are certainly uh, some of the election administration issues, such as voter purges, uh, and there we've seen in the news there are jurisdictions that are purging hundreds of thousands of persons, and ensuring that those persons are notified and have the ability to uh, remain on the voter rolls. Or re-register in order to gain access to the ballot. Certainly, voter purchase is a big, it's a is a very uh, large issue going into this election.
1: And could you explain to any listeners who may not have been following it precisely what this purge is? I, you know, as a citizen, I may just think, well, I I, I registered to vote. I know that I voted, say, in the twenty twelve election. So, and I haven't moved. You know, I'm right. still in my same house. So, aren't I still able to go to my local precinct and cast a vote if I really want to in this election.
0: Great. Well, Leah, I actually have to go even further back to the Shelby decision. Yes. The Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder decision, in which the Supreme Court gutted key elements of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, it essentially um, removed protections from the covered jurisdictions, which were primarily states in the South. One of the key conditions for uh, the coverage was that those jurisdictions had to submit any voting changes to either the United States Attorney General or the uh, D.C. District Court before they could implement changes. And those changes could include anything from moving a polling place across the street to a congressional redistricting. They could not implement those changes until those changes were approved. In 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 any year, the Department of Justice would receive approximately twenty thousand voting changes from these, you know, eleven states. Right. So just so imagine the twenty thousand changes that they knew were happening if they were get approval. Now those changes are happening without any federal oversight. One of the things that certainly would have needed to get approval would have, would be voter purges, removing people from that, because that is a change affecting voting. So without that, for example, places like Georgia decide we're going to move polling places, close polling places, and even take people off the voter rolls. There was a Supreme Court case, the Husted case uh, versus the A. Philip Randolph Institute. In that case, the Supreme Court said that jurisdictions could remove persons for not voting. So for example, In Ohio, if you missed two federal elections, let's say a midterm and a general election, they can remove you from the voter rolls.
1: So hypothetically, I could be a citizen in that area who didn't feel particularly moved by any of the candidates for a couple of elections or did not think that any of the ballot measures needed my input, but was actually very invested in this current election. And on election day, I would show up to the polls and be turned away? What would happen if I had been, is it state dependent? What happens if I, okay. It
0: varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In some places they may place you on an inactive list. Uh, and 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 in many places you get on this list by not returning a, essentially a postcard. So the secretary of state's office or the local registrar would send a postcard essentially saying, have you moved? And if you don't return that card, they can put you on an inactive list. And in some places, if you don't return the card, they will remove you from the voter registration rolls. So if you go to vote, they tell you you're not on the list and they will, in many places, you would have to vote a provisional ballot. And then there are also rules about that, right? So this so is a key, it, it, it's classic voter suppression, right? In that it's a device that's intended to eliminate certain voters, right? And in many instances, you're eliminating large, particularly in the Georgia example, the jurisdictions that were hardest to hit were certainly those that uh, were primarily uh, Democratic and certainly primarily people of color. So just yet another device that facilitates, it's another device that facilitates the removal of people of color from the voter rolls.
1: By placing additional impediments in their path,
0: absolutely, absolutely. This, you know, and and you know, maybe the biggest problem that we that we have at this point is fatigue. Right, there's so many obstacles. One of the reasons I wrote the book was again because I feel like we need to connect the dots, but also I thought I felt that there was a void. You, you see, there are there are books on whole books on like electoral college or even voter ID or voter fraud. But no one was saying we need to look at these things as a system, right? Voter ID, voter purges, felon disenfranchisement, even voter deception, all those things together are disenfranchising large swaths of people, right? When you look at them in isolation, you say, oh, voter ID, everybody has an ID, when we know they're, they're, that that's a myth. Everyone does not have a voter ID. And I certainly document in the book the difficulties that people have had in certainly trying to obtain uh, restrictive ID. So when we look at these suppressive measures as a whole, hopefully you can see, and again, connecting the dots, that this is a system of discrimination that must be dismantled.
1: One of the elements that you just brought up, and I would love for us to get into, because it's certainly been in the news and been in the popular conversation, is the idea of felon disenfranchisement. I actually had a conversation with someone from Germany just this past month where I had to explain to them, Oh, yes, in the United States, if you are in prison, you may still be counted as part of the population of a county, but you cannot actually vote for the county officials and and you know, if you are a felon, sometimes that can mean, depending on what state you're in, that you can never vote again. Ever. Um, so could you talk a little bit about felon disenfranchisement and how that has been used to suppress the vote and mm-hmm. our methods for for trying to address those issues and that problem?
0: It's one of the things I talk about in the book as well, and it's, it's the history of felon disenfranchisement. And felon disenfranchisement is a device that uh, came about in post-Reconstruction during those constitutional conventions in the early 1900s where you had uh, segregationists essentially looking to see what types of devices they could adopt to eliminate black voters and one of those tactics was felon disenfranchisement where they determined essentially determined what crimes do african americans generally commit right and designated those crimes as disenfranchising crimes for example in mississippi Timber theft and wife-beating were disenfranchising crimes, but rape and murder was not.
1: That's astonishing. Yes. Actually, we, I
0: pause for effect. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> also, we, know. I didn't know. Yeah. Well, we did a prior episode a couple years back um, on a book called Vagrant Nation, where our guest had taken a look at vagrancy laws, and I was quite astonished to learn the way that vagrancy laws had been written, um, specifically to, you know, criminalize those post Reconstruction. Yeah, post Reconstruction to criminalize African Americans and then anyone else who uh, was considered right. outside society. Get put to
0: jail for favorite. looking like you're not working.
1: Yes. Yeah. What
0: is it? <sighs> right. So again, so 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 designating laws specifically. That they and they say this in the constitutional conventions. They say this It's documented, essentially that the goal was to eliminate and in their words, eliminate the darky from, quote unquote, from the voter oh. rolls. And they and as you as you pointed out in you in you know your astonishment at the Alabama numbers, they did that across the South. And and, and so effective. found this. And, very, and were very effective. And felon disenfranchisement was certainly a key tool in ensuring that that continued. So, fast forward to this new millennium, and there have been court cases challenging. Found disfranchisement laws as discriminatory. They have they have been highly unsuccessful. But what has been successful is legislative efforts and certainly executive orders. The court they were highly unsuccessful because the courts would say that the taint had been removed. For example, in places like Mississippi, they say, "Oh well, they finally added you know murder <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> disenfranchising um, as a as a disenfranchising crime." So the you know the taint has been removed from the yes then in its inception, it was solely for the purpose of removing African-Americans. But since that time, we've changed the, the disenfranchising crimes. However, the impact is still the same, particularly in places like Florida, where 25 percent of African-Americans do not have the right to vote because they have a disenfranchising. But in those crimes and things like suspended licenses, you lose your right to vote because you have a suspended license that essentially means you didn't pay some fees, right? Didn't pay fines and fees. And we saw that in, in, you know, in 2018, the state of Florida, the people in the state of Florida said enough and passed amendment four, which the thought was that it would certainly enfranchise those 1.4 million people in Florida who were disenfranchised because they had previously uh, committed a felony. however, we're now, you know, there's litigation around it. There's legislation that's being proposed as well. I think the, the 11th Circuit will rule this week in determining whether or not this ability to pay is something and essentially it's been called in the, in the litigation they're calling The 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 way that Amendment 4 is being implemented in the state of Florida as a poll tax. Meaning and an unconstitutional poll tax because the, the legislature and the governor has maintained that anyone before they can be restored before the right to vote can be restored they must pay all their fines, fees, and restitution. And for many people, that's cost prohibitive because those fines, fees, and restitution are enormous. So there's a so there's there's a lawsuit to, to determine. Whether or not that's violative of the United States Constitution and whether or not the ability to pay should be a hindrance to the right to vote. So you still have the same impact that you still are eliminating large swaths of people of color. While the taint might have been removed, according to the courts, the impact is the same.
1: Switching gears a little bit, I had a question and maybe some of my readers do as well. You have a chapter in the book called "Voter Deception," and mm-hmm. <laughs> you you point out the difference in uh, these two terms: voter deception and voter intimidation. Could you describe what each of those are and how they have been kind of rearing their ugly heads recently?
0: Yeah, well, voter deception is I think is certainly something that is voter deception is something that I don't that I think doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> I actually wrote a law review article. Uh, the title was Voter Deception, um, and you know, for those uh, listeners who did really want to nerd out <laughs> on the issue, and actually the, the Voter Deception chapter is probably my nerdiest chapter, because I do <laughs> talk about what's the difference between voter deception and uh, voter intimidation, and why do we have laws against it that certainly protect us from voter deception? Uh, some of the examples I give in the chapter have to do, I think one of my favorite examples is the one that was, uh, there was a, a message sent out to students that said, all you had to do was text, hashtag Hillary, and then you would have effectively voted, right? So instead of <laughs> actually going to a polling place, hashtag Hillary was all you need to do, So, was, which was deceptive, right? And so you, so, you know, if, for those students who believe that, they hashtag Hillary and went on about their day instead of actually going to the polling place.
1: And social media seems to be a vector for a lot of these you brought up. There was I'm forgetting what what position he held, but uh, I believe a mayor yes. who on his his own Facebook page said something about how oh, uh voting for Republicans is held on the Tuesday and voting for Democrats is held on the on the Wednesday. Right, right. Which of and, course and- is not true.
0: Right, exactly, and right. So, in getting that, hearing that from an official source, right? You think the mayor should know when election days are, and they're not, but but doing that in a deceptive way, right? Because the assumption is that, you know, Republicans vote on Tuesdays,
1: the right? actual election day, yeah,
0: right, and that Democrats would vote on Wednesday, uh, and so which is not the you know, the day after the election, before social media was certainly common, or certainly. We've learned of flyers being placed in communities that said exactly that, you know, Republicans vote on Tuesday, Democrats vote on Wednesday, which is very plausible because in places like South Carolina, Republicans have a primary on one day and then a week or two later, Democrats have have a primary, right? So they were actually different days in some states where Republicans vote on, you know, for primaries at least. Um, But certainly for the general election, that's not the case. So so it is conceivable that people would believe that, particularly when it comes from a source such as an elected official.
1: I actually was interested in asking you about that because you'd served in both the Clinton administration and the George W. Bush administration. And, you know, a significant portion of that time was before any of us were on social media of any kind. Uh, so you would have to have actually, you know, gone and mimeographed some flyers and and physically put them up, <laughs> right. uh, rather than having the ability to reach literal millions of people just by um, right. typing a message right. into a computer.
0: Right. And even like the, for, the whole foreign interference claims with uh, Facebook and other social media. I didn't go into a whole lot of detail because I could write a whole book about that alone. Just the whole, yeah, I could write a book about any one of these chapters. But that's the part of the purpose of it was to kind of demonstrate how all of these things are working together. So if you think about how many people are affected by voter ID, how many people are affected by voter purges, people who are affected by voter deception, folks who are affected by felon disenfranchisement, that's a lot
1: of people. And one thing I'd like to emphasize to my listeners is the book Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. The book, it's not a long book, and it's written to be accessible. So when you were writing this, who did you picture as your target audience? Who did you imagine picking up the book and reading it and synthesizing the information? What was your intended audience?
0: Well, my my intended audience was, you know, those persons certainly who are interested in elections, but those people who work in, you know, in elections. I I, I imagine that Um, people who worked at polling places or folk who worked in organizations like the League of Women Voters, right? People who Mm -hmm. worked with legal women voters could pick up the book and read and say, hmm, I knew that was happening. (laughs) I just didn't know what it was called. I didn't know that there were other things that were going on. And I also want them to say,
1: now I know what I can do about it. And that's such a key part, and I'd like us to get to that as soon as we come back from a break to hear a word from our sponsor.
0: Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and I'm here with Gilda Daniels, author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. And Gilda, after having read the book, after having been made aware of all these issues, this can feel very daunting and scary. Mm -hmm. And I I look back and I think, oh no, no, the periods in history where we thought we were making progress and then we lost that progress. So I think it would be easy to be very scared and alarmed, and sometimes that leads to inaction, but that's not what you are what you want and what you're driving people uh, to do. So if I am a reader of an Uncounted and I'm alarmed at voter suppression happening in my country, what could I, as just a general reader, do about it?
0: Right. That's a great question. And certainly one of the things. So I certainly want to provide hope <laughs> and uh, healing. Right. And the Bible says physician heal thyself." <laughs> so, we have to be the physicians here. and We have to heal ourselves and, and, and force our country to live out. It's, you know, original intention that all men are created equal. And that we are, we are a democracy, We and we want to hear the voices of people. And so I think that's one of the things that I hope to do again with this book is to empower and think that people can do. I ask people to do three things, and that's educate, legislate, litigate. In regards to educate, I ask everyone to educate themselves about the voting process. When is election day? When is the last day to register? What documents are needed to register? Where's your polling place? All those kinds of things. And then I want you to educate those around you, your family members, people you work with, folks at your church, your mosque, your synagogue, right? So I want you to educate everyone about not only the process of voting and accessing the right right to vote, but also about the candidates and where they stand in those kinds of things. And then I want you to to legislate or at least to pay attention to legislation. We're in the legislative sessions now in a number of states. There are laws that are that are being written and submitted that can change the way you you vote or your ability to register, and can and impact you on other levels. And so, when you're paying attention at legislation, you're trying to determine what, to what extent the people who are already in office are are representing you, right? So if you're going to look at what are they talking about in regards to schools and. Crime and education, you know, education and, and then litigate. I want you to partner with organizations um, like Advancement Project in order to, you know, in order to ensure that we can make this country better. So I think if we educate, legislate, litigate. And I've, I've added a fourth one. There are three in the book. Fourth one is certainly participate <laughs> <laughs> and participating on all levels. One of the things on my website dot com. You can sign up to be a poll worker, um, which I think can, in that kind of, in that um, way, I think it's very important to people to participate in uh, volunteering for um, Election Day and, and serving as a poll worker and, you know, working in all these areas, but even considering running for office yourselves, right? Um, so I think, so there are things we can do. We're going to, we are, um, I think we, we have the solution and it's it's not a time to, uh be depressed because, yeah, as I said, I use my grandmother's a timeline. she's seen a lot in her you know nearly uh, one hundred years in her ninety nine years she certainly um saw a lot and but one of the things that you know she certainly maintained is that you know, at this time in history, we have more tools available to us than certainly she did so we we have the tools, we have the know how and we can we can make this a democracy that's reflective of um, the people in our country.
1: And Gilda in addition to going to your website and if you wouldn't mind repeating that URL again I'd appreciate it. If someone wanted to reach out and discuss these issues, find out find out more or find that law review article that you <laughs> cited in the book, where should they go and, and how could they do that?
0: But certainly if you go to www. GildaDaniels.com. G-i-l-d-a-d-a-n-i-e-l-s.com. There's a, certainly a, a way to you can contact me. Uh, there's an, and I, you'll have my email, phone, and other uh, information. NYUPress.org is also a place where you can um, you know where in uh, regards to speaking and talking about the book. Is also you can go to NYUPress.org. Uh, but certainly, uh, Guilt com is
1: probably the first place to go. And in addition to getting in touch with you, how can people buy Uncounted? Uh, you can buy Uncounted on Amazon,
0: uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can also uh, go to nyupress.org and purchase the book. Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold. And if it's not, you should request it so that they'll get it in their stores. <sighs>
1: Well, Gilda, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Thank you. Well, thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe on your favorite platform.